This talk was recorded at the 2019 Actuarial Society of South Africa Convention at the Sandton Convention Centre. For more information on the Actuarial Society, visit actuarialsociety.org.za. Okay, good morning everybody. All uh, bright and shiny after <laughs> last night's party. Uh, <laughs> still a bit shaky. Good. Uh, thanks a lot for attending this morning. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here. Uh, let me just, uh, by way of introduction, introduce myself and Hank here. Uh, my name is Andre Blau. I'm Associate Director at PwC's Actuarial Risk and Quants Practice here in Johannesburg. And I'm heading our data science uh, team, which we started some time ago. Uh, Hank is a qualified actuary, but currently focusing and specializing also in the data science field, managing our team. And maybe just a bit of background of what we're doing. We started our journey in this space about 18 months or so ago. We went PwC globally. Um, started to realize when they want to assist clients in going forward in implementations and you know, review of AI machine learning models and systems, uh, the family really had to uh, invest in research and experimentation and understanding these kind of techniques uh, themselves. So globally we started acquiring data sets and accumulating really real, real life data sets, experimented with these models, tried to understand you know, where these techniques work, what don't work. Uh, how do they differ compared to traditional model building techniques? Uh, what are the pitfalls, et cetera, et cetera. And then about six months ago, we started focusing on this area, which is the topic of today's discussion, around how do you control risk of a machine learning model? Uh, it's, it's become fairly quick and easy relatively to build these models because of the powerful algorithms available but a lot more challenging in ensuring they're trustworthy. So that's what we're going to focus on in today's discussion, and I hope you guys will, will gain out, out of the session a lot. Okay, and we'll just take us through the, uh, the content of the program. Thanks, uh, Andres. So just to briefly kick us off and provide the context, really, of, of what we'll be discussing today, Andre will quickly run through a few of the machine learning adoption trends, uh, just some backgrounds to, to really set the scene. Um, after that, we're going to run a quick poll. So recently at uh, PwC, we actually had our first responsible AI seminar where we invited uh, some of the banks, mostly focusing on, on banking there specifically, uh, for, uh, for a seminar. And we did a bit of a, a poll there. Um, what we'd like to do is also get your thoughts on, on the same questions we asked there, provide the results from, from that survey and just show um, where, where everyone is, is currently at. Then uh, next we'll be moving on to just a general context of machine learning trustworthiness, what it actually means, um, what the, the key challenges are. Then uh, we'll be discussing performance risk specifically within the context of the, the wider topic of AI ML trustworthiness. Then we're really going to delve into the details. So the first part of the session is going to be slightly broader, giving some context, walking more conceptually through how we think of it, some of the frameworks. And then really we're going to, to dig into the details on on robustness, uh, specifically some of the technical details, diagnosing it, treating it, etc. Same for fairness and interpretability. 
um, really getting into the details there. And then finally, we are going to, to conclude and, and just wrap up what we will be discussing today. So yeah, if uh, during the session you have any questions, uh, please do ask them. We want it to be nice and interactive. Uh, also share your own thoughts. It is a very, very quickly developing field. So it's, uh, there's a lot of, of knowledge to be shared. So if you have any questions or you have any comments, uh, please, please do share. So yeah, over to Andre. Thanks. Yeah, I just would like to reiterate what, what Anka said. Yeah, the space is moving fast. We can all learn from one another. So I'm sure many of you have already also experimented with these algorithms and got to some insights. And you know, uh, we welcome you to, to share those as, as we go along. Um, I think it's just uh, we don't want to spend a lot of time on these introductory sessions and just kind of get the scene. But I think it's worth just starting at this point and look at how these algorithms have actually evolved over you know, the last 50 years or so. Up to the sort of 70s, 80s, it was really the GLM space. I mean, we had all these generalized linear models, and that was the days when you didn't really have computing power. I mean, it was only in the sort of mid-80s when you could start modeling uh, fair-size uh, uh, models with nonlinear relationships and multiple many variables on a desktop computer. And that's when, you know, this kind of technique started to really take off. So in the 90s, we started seeing uh, decision tree type algorithms, uh, many of them, the uh, kernel type methods becoming available. And then sort of the uh, early 2000s, you know, the early uh, generation of neural nets. They were very simple, feed-forward, multi-layer perceptron neural nets. And things really started to take a turn here around about 2012, when computing power really, really reached a stage where you can do very large-scale uh, optimization that's required for a neural net. I mean, a neural net uh, model such as Google's word to vec which is a natural language uh, uh, processing type model, has three million parameters to optimize. So quite a bit of uh, computing power you need for that kind of stuff. And that's when you, since 2012, you really started to see very, very complex neural nets and you know, recurrent neural nets in many, many fields, voice, text, etc., and so on. And that, that, that is continuing unabated. I mean, you now see reinforcement learning, a new, last year or so, this new generation of, of uh, generative additive models and, and so forth. I think the, the, the key point here is, although the uh, uh, theory of AI has been around for 50 years, applied AI is really deep learning, uh, and that's only been around for about six, seven years. So we're really only starting to see this technology now coming to the fore, only in the last couple of years. And I think last, uh, what's also quite noteworthy is like these algorithms are getting more and more powerful in a gap between the capacity of these algorithms to model big data, a lot of complex uh, interrelationships, uh, and that of the first generation GLM models are just getting larger and larger by the day, or by the year. Okay, so where are we going next? Well. Uh, a couple of things that I think we need to take into account is this whole thing, thing about quantum computing. It's a totally new technology of designing computer chips, uh, merging chip design with uh, quantum physics. And, you know, that's going to have the capacity to actually process the calculations 100 million times faster than what we see today. And that's not years away. It's already available on cloud, Google Cloud and IBM. And really, machine learning stands to benefit the most of, it, of this because, as I said, large number of variables that need to be optimized, multidimensional space, complex processing, and you know, machine learning will be able to do a lot more in AI machine learning with this kind of technology. Then, of course, there's this whole new IoT, streaming data, edge computing, 5G is going to have a major impact on this, where 
you know, you're going to have edge devices that are generating streams of data in real time, which now creates a new kind of field of application of machine learning algorithms that, you know, to model those. Uh, and then lastly, you know, but we also start seeing this exponential growth in machine learning algorithm, technical papers and the research being published. So you have this triple exponential um, of computing power data and algorithms, which really could cause a major, this kind of uh, growth that we've seen even to speed up. Uh, a lot of projections, uh, PwC's own projection of, you know, massive increase in global growth of using these type of technologies. That's kind of long-term projections, but short-term we're also now starting to see really these algorithms taking off, you know, a lot of uh, machine learning projects uh, coming out of uh, sort of pilot phase, starting to moving into production and so on. Okay, the question one might ask, well, okay, what's happening in financial services, which is a regulated field, which you know, is a lot more restricted in terms of using those kind of technologies. But even here, we're starting to see some, some, some real traction. Um, uh, in banking, there's this uh, International Institute of Finance uh, survey that have now repeated for the second year uh, just recently, and you know, 60 banks internationally uh, surveyed. 42% uh, of them already have machine learning models in production, 45% uh, running pilots, and, and it's really increasing. Another uh, important uh, aspect here is we're starting to see that bank regulators are becoming very sophisticated users of AI. I mean, in, in the whole uh, big data econometrics field, economic forecasting, uh, so they're doing some really sophisticated stuff. Uh, so overall, I think the, you know, all the indications are that the technology is really gaining traction now and starting to, to really take off in terms of widespread adoption. Thanks, Thanks uh, Andre. So what we just quickly want to, as I said, want to, want to gauge also for the rest of the session is where everyone is at in terms of their, their level of maturity. So maybe just to, to start off with, before we start with the, the actual poll. So by a show of hands, how many of you have actually experimented with some of the algorithms? So for example, built a random forest model or a simple neural network, etc. By show of hands, we started playing around. Okay, so, so one or two in, in, in the session, it's, uh, it's, it's really, really good. So what we're what we, uh, going to ask now is, is more from an organizational point of view, really where, where are you at in, in your journey? As I said, it's, it's, I think the goal is for, for everyone to also get a sense of where everyone else is at. And then we'll also share what we recently saw at, uh, at our own seminar. So also what we'll, we'll start off with is uh, the, the status of machine learning adoption in your organization, um, or if you're not aware of what's going on in the wider organization within your specific business unit, team, etc. So by show of hands, currently who has no plans that you are aware of in this space? By show of hands. Great, that's, uh, that's really, really good. So who's started thinking about it? So done some reading, got there in the journey, show events. Okay, it's quite, quite a number of people are, are currently thinking about it. And in terms of a, a roadmap, so in other words, how are we going to achieve machine learning or AI maturity? Who's, who's currently there? Who's got clearly defined plans? Okay, and then who has got some pilots in progress? So machine learning model pilots, one, two, three, four, five, six. Okay, that's really, really good. And then implementation's completed. Who's got something in production? Who's got something that's running? Great, that's, that's really, really, really good. So I think uh, contrasting that to what we, we recently saw is uh, a lot of people, um, or I think a lot of 
organizations have started thinking about it. Um, we, we see some quite disparity in, in terms of planning and roadmaps is really where we see things diverging. Once you've got a, a clear roadmap is really when we start seeing um, organizations actually moving over into action. Is It's really that planning phase which is, is quite clearly defined. And then very few actually in, uh, in production, uh, similar to what we saw now. But good to see the number of, number of pilots in, in progress actually probably slightly, proportionally slightly more than we, we saw at our, at our seminar. So, and then on, on the second question, in, in saying, what do you see as the biggest challenge to machine learning adoption in your organization? So firstly, maybe starting off with broadly the, the uh, topic of today's discussion is again by show of hands, uh, who thinks that ensuring that AI model, uh, ML models are trustworthy is the biggest challenge? Show of hands, no one. Sure, wow, okay, it's, uh, it's so interesting. So you trust this technology. Mm. <laughs> it's, uh, it's quite quite interesting. interesting. Uh, so secondly, on skill shortage in, in model development, who thinks that that is the, the key challenge? Quite a, a number of hands, uh, hands there. Skill shortage in model validations, in other words, checking that these models, one, two, three, are doing what they claim to be doing and what you want them to be doing. Um, right, then availability of tools, so software tools, Processing environments, cloud environments, storage, security, the, the infrastructure. For who is that a key challenge or a key constraint? So we've got one, one hand at the, the back there. And then also data availability and quality. For who is that a, a key constraint? One, two, three, four, five. That's, that's quite, uh, quite significant. So what we see, saw at our, at our recent uh, seminar with about, uh, I'd say about 60 uh, machine learning practitioners uh, attending, is about 50, just over 50% said that uh, skills uh, are the, the main challenge that they're faced with on the model development and validation side. Um, massive challenge there. And then uh, I think uh, contrasting here is the, the second piece is getting, getting the real buy-in um, from senior management to ensure that the models are, are trustworthy and not opening yourself up to more, more model risk than you have risk appetite for is uh, I think another key consideration. Availability of tools and data availability and quality slightly, slightly distant uh, in, in the past there. But yeah, so that's uh, it's really quite interesting. I hope it gives everyone a, a sense of, of what we are actually faced with. So and we'll just broadly um, start off with uh, the context of AI machine learning trustworthiness. Good, thanks, Hank. Good, uh, trustworthiness didn't come up as a key concern uh, right now, but I'm sure it will be in the future. I mean, this whole area of AI trustworthiness is really starting to, to take off internationally. And this, uh, yeah, maybe just some uh, perspective here. So PwC is running this uh, annual pulse survey uh, on AI concerns of CEOs in the US. Now, of course, the US is a lot further than South Africa in implementation of AI and machine learning. But what was very interesting, the last couple of years, we, we saw you know, executives coming up out in the US and say, yeah, challenges with implementation, skill shortages, data, et cetera, et cetera, all of those issues. But as they're starting to implement these, these uh, AI systems, uh, it starts start to shift. And really this year, I mean, increased vulnerability and disruption to business is a key concern. Once you have an AI system running, you start getting you know, concerned that it can cause disruption, you know, things might happen, you can't control it. Somebody can interfere with the system and they start malfunctioning, it's got a huge impact and, and which you're not aware of. You know, Potential biases and lack of transparency. Bias is a huge, huge issue. You know, you, there's a lot of bias 
or potentially it is human bias and everything, but you know, building a machine learning model, you can amplify that bias. And models start taking decisions with you know, unintentional discrimination, it's got huge implications for the organization. Uh, ensuring governance and the rules to control AI. So the whole area of trustworthiness is kind of shifting to the forefront, and particularly as AI systems are starting to, to get implemented. So, and what we've seen globally, it's really when you build these models initially, um, you know, it's all about model risk. Is the bias in the model, you know, is it interpretable, is it accurate, is it reliable and consistent predictions? But very soon, you know, these kind of risks start to become wider organization type concerns. You know, third party liability because you use a lot of uh, you know, third party technology or uh, uh, alliances and vendors. Conduct risks are becoming a big issue. And really it can also start to, you know, becoming systemic in areas like asset management and capital markets. AI models are now, you know, taking a lot of decisions. You can have a Trump tweet and, you know, they all, all start to selling uh, and taking a decision in, in the same direction. You can have systemic impact. So it started to become a broader organization and really industry concern. So what we say in PwC and, you know, other organizations are the same type of philosophy to this. They say it's all about responsible AI. And the responsible AI means, you know, you want to build AI machine learning solutions that actually has a business benefit. There's a value for the business. Um, it's not just about jumping on a bandwagon and, you know, take hype. Uh, there has to be good business value, but that business value has to be derived in a way that you're not going to discriminate against certain unprivileged groups and, you know, you maintain the, the value system of the organization and it's to the benefit of the broader society. And then secondly, it's all about building robust AI systems. It's AI solutions and models that uh, perform as, as, as expected on unseen data. It's reliable, it's consistent, you can interpret an out outcome, and you know, it, it's not uh, discriminatory. And that's really all about this whole aspect of performance risk. And you know, performance risk is what we're going to uh, dive a little bit deeper into. Uh, maybe just worth before we get into performance risk, um, you know, just a bit about what, what is different with these kind of models. Well, first of all, you know, you have, you have different types of machine learning models. I mean, some of them just performing a perception task, uh, you know, classification, regression, or whatever, but there's also reinforcement learning, perform action task, that has got much wider impact. Uh, but basically, they all uh, learn from data. So it's automated learning from data, and that process, there's a lot of things that can go wrong. I mean, the traditional model building, you don't have an algorithm that learns from data. Um, you know, it's typically much of the humans is there and, you know, it does do this analysis and that type of analysis and actually learn from the data. Uh, but this time the model is learning from the data. And that learning process is key and it's got, you know, create, can create a lot of issues and problems and risk also. Now, the second point is here we're dealing with unstructured data, semi-structured data is a key. And that comes in in many applications that we didn't you know, use uh, unstructured data before. Even learn applications, you might want to unpack the text. Uh, into a back of words or whatever to give the model insights to learn. Um, you know, so that, that's, that's inevitable in AI. And then you have this issue that there's not one model. Traditionally, we have one model that does a prediction. Yeah, you have multiple models interacting, whether it's a neural net or uh, ensemble of trees. And, you know, sensitivity to data and change in the environment is, is a lot, lot more... Um, you know, bigger issue than before. And then we have algorithms versus closed-form models, you know. In a closed-form model, you can look at a model definition and formulation independent of the code and actually understand that. With the algorithm, you actually have to do, look at the code to understand the model. I mean, it's, it's, it's quite different and a lot more complex. 
And without going into detail here, we don't want, you know, it's outside the scope here today to talk about all these various algorithms. I'm sure you guys know a lot of them, but I'm already, but I think a key point is that the way these algorithms learn is getting more and more sophisticated. Uh, and as those learning uh, methods from them become more sophisticated, also become a lot more complex to, to actually control and to you know, validate the risk and these things. So at the top, you have the you know, supervised learning, which is something that we're all very familiar with. It's structured data. You have labeled response data, credit defaults, default, no default, historical data. And you actually train the model to, to maximize the prediction under the supervision of the so-called of, of the label. Um, and that's really many of the uh, problems, models we build in risk and finance today fall in that category. Uh, unsupervised learning, it becomes a lot more difficult to, you know, to, to control model risk because there's no label. The algorithm is going to you know, uh, define, identify associations and, and clustering, et cetera, in the data. It will identify sequence and you know other patterns in the data and so on. Very very difficult to to validate the model like that. You know you can do benchmarking, follow techniques like that, but it becomes a lot more difficult. You know, supervised learning a lot easier. Uh, uh, then you get into reinforcement learning spaces, even more complex. You have an algorithm that trains to to achieve a policy objective. There's a penalty, there's a reward if it gets it wrong, and it can adapt the strategy and so on. So um, I think the point is that. Uh, just to set the scene here, what we're going to talk about in these techniques to control model risk in the next couple of sessions will only focus at the top supervised learning area. Uh, you know, start talking about the reinforcement learning in these kind of areas. A lot of these, th these techniques have not even been thought about because of the complexity of, of those kind of algorithms. So just bear that in mind. Okay, so. We at PwC have actually defined a uh, uh, model development framework, model design framework, which really break down uh, performance, AI performance risk, which is really model risk, into these eight, uh, seven or eight components. And there's about 55 metrics that we've come up and that you know, perform calculations to diagnose model risk across all, uh, across all of these. Uh, there's a, there's, when building machine learning model, there are some new aspects and new things that you do that you haven't done, uh, typically not done in traditional model building. I mean, feature engineering is a very key part of, of machine learning. You have to extract features of the data for the algorithm to enable the algorithm to learn. You have to do some transformations on the data. If you do the wrong transformation or the wrong algorithm, it can, can cause problems. You know, something like algorithm selection is a very, very key thing. Um, you know, traditional model building, you, you pick logistic regression and that's your selected method for building classification models and that you're going to use. But uh, with the machine learning model, it's all in the data. You know, one algorithm uh, will work very well, but on the next data set in the same domain, you know, it doesn't work so well because, because of the data. You have to fit to the, the trick there is always to find an alternative algorithm that's actually simpler and even more interpretable. Uh, that give you the ex exact same accuracy as, as the model, even, even better than you're currently doing. So that algorithm selection is a large part and there's a lot of risk that can happen there. Hyperparameter optimization at the top left is also a new thing in machine learning. I mean, in machine learning and AI, you have model parameters that need to be optimized, like in traditional model building. But in addition to that, you have this outer layer of uh, so-called hyperparameters. So they, they kind of 
parameters that define the structure of the neural net or the ensemble tree structure, number of layers and number of neurons, etc. And there can be many of those things and you need to be optimized and you know, there's a lot of risk that can creep in there in terms of unnecessary complexity, overfitting, etc. etc. So um, for the rest of the discussion, we're really uh, only going to pick these three for more detailed analysis and you know, unpack it and look at the outputs, i.e. Uh, robustness here at the bottom. And that's all about you know, consistency and reliability of, of the model. Prediction, fairness, which deals with the whole issue of bias in, in, in the outputs, and then interpretability and explainability. Good, so we're going to start with robustness, and, and Henk is going to take away. Thanks, uh, Andre. So maybe to start off with, with uh, robustness is also a comment on saying that um, we want to deal with the, the content at a certain level. If you feel that that is too high or too low, um, you're welcome to ask questions, ask for more explanation, either to say what does this concept mean, or then also to say can you delve into slightly more detail uh, on it specifically. So I think we've got a good chunk of time to, to deal with it. So maybe to start off with is, is robustness is it's quite a wide concept. Um, that you can think of robustness and different people think of robustness in, in different ways. Um, what we thought of is, is key components of robustness um, and what we'll be uh, talking about specifically today is um, some of these, these concepts, firstly being out of sample variance. So in saying that when building a machine learning model, you want to make sure that it generalizes well to data that it hasn't actually seen before. So we're going to deal slightly with concepts of overfitting, underfitting, how that works in bias, etc. Then also the concepts of repeatability. You want to make sure that the model that you're building uh, is actually repeatable, that if you train it again or you want to validate it, that it actually gives you consistent answers that you can, can use and that you can uh, rely on. Something that we won't go into, into a lot of detail on uh, and similar with adversarial noise. Fascinating subject where you can actually, and, and this is especially where you've got live dynamic data flowing into your model with your data retraining, is where you're actually open to to noise um, distorting your, your model results because your model might actually be training to noise rather than, than the pure signal. So this, these are our key concepts. So we'll be hosting a seminar towards the end of November uh, at our offices where we'll get into a lot of detail on each of these, a lot more detail on each of these topics. Today we're just specifically going to focus on out of sample variance because uh, I think it really is one of the starting points that you need to focus on before starting thinking about uh, a lot of the other things. We'll get into those details uh, a bit later on, on the seminar. So firstly, just recapping what it is, what we mean uh, when we say robustness and what it means to, to overfit and underfit. And this is just providing some, some background. So what we've got top left is we've got an example of saying overfitting. So the blue dots are our data points that we have and then the orange line is where we've fitted a, a model or a trend specifically to that. So what we can see there is that the, the fit is really, really good. And by bias in this context, we mean um, the, the accuracy. Um, so lack of bias means accuracy. So in other words, when we say low bias, it's, it's essentially an, an accurate fit. So here we're really capturing all of the movement, but you need to ask yourself the question is, is that the real trend? So in other words, what we call the signal. Is that really the signal or is there some noise in this? So in other words, some random error in terms of traditional statistic modeling, statistical modeling that we're fitting to. 
to, uh, bottom left we've got underfitting where while we've got lower variance and by variance we're saying variance to to unseen data so in other words um, generalized generalized um, application uh, but we've got high bias so what we really want to get to is what we've got on the, the right-hand side. We want to get to low bias, low variance. In other words, we want to capture the true signal of what it is that we're trying to model. And that objective can be a lot of different things. Uh, as we said, it can be a classification problem, can be a regression problem, um, just anomaly detection, lots of different things that you actually have there. Um, but what we want to do is we really want to, to obtain a good fit. So now putting that in the context of uh, the bias-variance trade-off, is what we have in the, the graph there at the top is really we want to get to that optimal capacity point. We want to get to that point where we have low bias, low variance. Um, and then what it really boils down to is what we this generalization error uh, over there that is saying that we've got a model that fits well but doesn't fit too much on your training data. Because in machine learning, you've, as in statistical modeling, traditional statistical modeling, you've got the concept of your, your training data set and then also your, your out of sample against which you test. You want to make sure that it actually generalizes well to your unseen data because it's no use that you've got incredible accuracy on your training data set, but that when you actually go into production, uh, then that this model doesn't uh, perform well on, on data that it hasn't seen. So just pausing there for a moment on traditional statistical models is they're much more prone to large bias. Uh, and the reason for that is we make a lot of inherent assumptions in, in those statistical models. We make an assumption about log normality of stock prices. We make assumptions around independence in, in Markov chains uh, when modeling things like customer uh, movement between different segments. Um, there's, there's really a lot of statistical assumptions, Gaussian uh, distribution being used all over the show. Um, Coppola has a few uh, interesting uh, techniques going on there and a few uh, assumptions underlying them. What we're really saying here is that machine learning models learn off of the data. And that's something that we, we really want to emphasize, which is also what, what Andres said, is the data really leads you in terms of where you are going with, with the modeling. So we have fewer of those assumptions, but then also at the same time is those assumptions were set based on something, right? There was someone that thought it's actually a good idea to make this, this assumption, that it's not just a nice closed form solution uh, to use. So what we then need to guard against when it comes to machine learning models is that we don't overfit. So that we don't say, well, we are just purely going to let the data guide us because if you purely fit to the data itself, you might actually be missing the point. So, so that's really what we want to do is one of the key things in um, machine learning models, what we want to control when it comes to design risk is robustness and, and robustness terms overfitting. So in terms of how we can diagnose overfitting, but actually to pause there for a moment, does, does that make sense to everyone? Is there anyone that has a question um, maybe on, on the concept itself, um, how it differs to traditional statistical modeling? You're, you're welcome to, to ask questions. We do have some time uh, available.
So the question was that if you have really sparse data sets, and by sparse data I assume you mean small, smallish data sets, not a lot of data to, to train on. I think as a starting point, um, it, it must be noted that machine learning and deep learning really come to their full power on big data. So that's really what they feed off of. Um, so as, as a starting point, that's maybe a comment, but there are some techniques that you can use in terms of using reusing data, so bootstrapping data, making certain inferences on the data to take the little data that you have um, and actually extrapolate and create a bigger data set which has the same features of the sparse data but that you can extrapolate the, the limited data that you have to a bigger data set off of which you can train. So in other words, you're actually generating additional data off of your, your limited data set. However, as with traditional statistics, you're still limited by saying that if you've got a small sample, um, it might actually not be averaging out well over the, the population. So if the small sample that you do have um, has a lot of input bias in it, and it's not actually a true reflection of the larger population, then you are going to get distorted results. So it is a, a key risk that you need to look out for um, still, and unfortunately, there, there are some techniques that you can get around it, but you still need to think bigger picture. What is it that I'm looking at? Is this a true representation? So in other words, if you use those techniques to bootstrap, to extrapolate your data, create the, the additional data set, is it going to, yeah, because it can only learn off of the data that it has. So it's just going to take those same characteristics and just blow it out to make sure that that is represented in the larger data set that you create off of it. Does that answer your question? Yeah. Cool. Anything else? Perfect. So I think then we can move on to the uh, techniques and diagnosing overfitting. So these are some of the techniques that, that we've been using and, and some of the ones that are easier. As we said, it, it very much isn't that supervised learning um, space that, that these are, are effective. So the first one is train test curve divergence. So what you're doing is you've split your, your complete data set that you have available into your trained data set and your test uh, data set. So you're training your machine learning model on your training data specifically. And what we've got on the horizontal axis there on the left top is that you've, you've got the epochs which you, you're retraining your model multiple times over this data. So what you can see there is as you start training your model, your model loss, which is what you're trying to minimize, right? You want to minimize the, the loss itself as you train your data get that bias lower then you drop it quite quickly so you see that the strong negative slope there uh, coming down quite significantly what you then see is towards the end you see a divergence in loss between your train and your test data set so in other words you're training your model but as you apply it to your test data you actually see you're losing accuracy relative to your train um, to your train data so what that shows is this is slight divergence uh, which you can decide in the context of what you're trying to achieve, how significant that is, but then also it's, it's, it's valuable to keep an eye on that. So if they significantly diverge, it means you're getting great accuracy on your training data, but it's not generalizing well to your test data. So that's something to, to look out for. Then second, also careful cross-validation. So what this is essentially is, is if you've got one test data set, then it is taking various subcomponents, randomized subcomponents of that data set. So by k-fold, it is essentially where k is the number of subsets of data that you uh, take from that testing data set. And what you do is you validate your results against that specific subset of data. 
So in other words, while you're, if you're overfitting, what you would see is you've got good accuracy on your training data and you might have good accuracy or one, on one or two subsets of your uh, test data. But if you're overfitting, then you could see large variation between those different subsegments to say, in some cases, it maybe fits very well. In other cases, it fits really poorly. So if you see large variance in, in your uh, validation results in this individual folds is really when you know, okay, so I may be overfitting on some pieces and it's something that we need to, to take a look at. So those are two, two techniques. Um, next, we'll move over. Sorry, Andre. Yeah, maybe I can just add to the earlier question. This kind for cross-validation is also an effective technique to deal with small data sets. Because effectively what you try and do here, you try and maximize the number of times that a model is going to be tested on unseen data. So what you can do is the so-called leave one out cross-fold validation. Uh, you make a equal to the number of data points you have. So you have 10,000 data points, you would move one data point to the test set and, you know, you know, train a model on the rest, do a prediction on that one, repeat that 10,000 times. So the model, you maximize the model, you know, uh, the ability of the model to, to, to be tested on unseen data. Thanks, uh, Andre. So now the question is, is let's say there, there is overfitting in the model. How do we actually control overfitting? So I think key here is that the first port of call is to start with is your algorithm choice. So in machine learning models, what we generally find is that you will fit a variety of different algorithms. So where someone just says, I just want to fit a neural net or where I just want to fit a boosting model um, or just want to fit an SVM, it's generally much, you're much more successful in generating lift when you've got a variety of algorithms in your toolbox that you actually want to apply to the specific problem. With that being said is some algorithms are less prone to overfitting. If you take someone giving some examples, if you take something like a random forest, where a random forest is you are getting diversification benefit over a number of different decision trees. You are really going to be less prone to overfit on something like that than you would be on a single decision tree, where a single decision tree, if you really let it get down to the, the lowest margin of error, um, it, it's very likely that it will actually overfit if you let it continue. Same with uh, boosting models, by their very natures, they keep on wanting to improve accuracy up to a certain level, um, then uh, neural nets with multiple hidden layers, etc. A lot of these algorithms are uh, more prone to overfitting, some are less prone to overfitting. So that's really where you can start in, in um, determining which, uh, which algorithm you, you want to choose. Then secondly, the hyperparameters, so the architecture hyperparameters specifically. So, and here we go into a, a bit of detail on the algorithms themselves, but for tree-based algorithms, limiting the, the tree depth. So what you then have is, let's say you've got, uh, instead of having 50 uh, points of decision in your decision tree, once you reach the 40th decision point, that's maybe sufficient accuracy. Saying it's made enough decisions, there's enough accuracy in there, there's really, it's got that predictive power. Anything more than that is, is just plain, it's just too much. Um, you are going to be overfitting and you're lo no longer going to be capturing the key characteristics, you're going to be capturing the noise. So then also a number of hidden layers in a neural network algorithm. You need to ask yourself if you go more than two, three hidden layers, are you really adding benefit? Are the relationships between the variables really that complicated that you need to produce that many layers? Or is it that you are overfitting and trying to see relationships which aren't really there? 
and, and that's what we, we're trying to express there. Number of neurons per hidden layer, similar story. And then also the, the minimum gene impurity gain for an additional split. So to say that if you need to go to such great lengths to make additional decisions for a very small gain in accuracy, it's also likely that you're starting to, to overfit and over-engineer the, the model. Also other really effective techniques, more classically regularization, uh, so both L1 and L2 regularization is quite uh, also quite popular in controlling overfitting and then um, bootstrapping your training data, so making sure that you are not training only to the same sample but training to different training data sets and, and getting an average model over that, so again an ensemble type architecture there is, is very very useful. Then early stopping during training, something that we briefly touched on in saying that if you've achieved a, a satisfactory level of accuracy is really where you can then stop and say we're happy that we're accurate enough, anything more than this might actually be spurious. Then drop out in, in neural networks, um, it's quite a, a recent uh, advance which has made a, a very big impact. Um, on, on neural nets, so just limiting the size there of, of the neuron weights and making sure that you are only really capturing what you're trying to capture and cutting out the, the noise there. And then also batch normalization, uh, finally whole topic on, on its own, uh, which we won't get into, but it's, it's some, some pretty yeah, effective techniques. And so I think the key message here is there are a lot of techniques in controlling overfitting, but firstly you need to be aware that your model is overfitting and not just see that while we've got a great accuracy, this is a wonderful model. Um, you'd really need to test it robustly to make sure that it is actually fitting quite well. And then secondly, saying from there, what can we do to, to control overfitting and produce that? So any questions uh, on that specifically? So there's no way of set, um, sounds more like you're potentially overfitting if you go beyond this level. I, I think there's there's it's almost it's it's all supported by science, right? So in saying that we've got the tools in the toolbox to um, do the testing itself, but you do need to play around a bit. And it's, it's similar with a, a number of different aspects of machine learning models, is you need to play around a bit, see if, if this works well, if that works well. And everything that you need to do, you need to support with the metrics. Um, but off the top of that, there is still a lot of judgment involved and a bit of creativity um, in, involved in this uh, particularly. Yeah, because also it's going to be very difficult to do all of it, you're just not going to have the computing power to do it. So over time, you also develop a sense of what works and what doesn't work, a bit of intuition there that is, is very, very useful in, in getting to it. But as we said, it's hard, but it's, it does need to be supported by, by the science part of it. Yeah, if I can just add, I think a lot of these are actually part of a design decision. You know, when you set up a neural network at the back of your mind, you've got to be very aware of overfitting. So, you know, it'd be very stupid to do design, define the neural network without setting these parameters like regularization, early dropout, you know, be conscious of a number of hidden layers that you define and so on. So they, they're part of good design decisions that you have to take into account when you, you know, you structure you know, and fit your algorithm. Of course, you could still have overfitting, and I think that's the point that Angus made. Afterwards, you now need to go and look at certain diagnoses 
like the train loss curve divergence and, and things like that, uh, you know, to assess if there is still uh, overfitting uh, remaining, and then you have to deal with that. Sure. So moving on to fairness, um, what we have in the, the fairness space, and it's really, I think here, the key point is that you get a lot of different definitions of fairness. So what is fair for one person might not be fair for another person. Uh, what is fair for one modeling objective might not be fair for another modeling objective. And that's also, I think, really the point that we're trying to make is we're not going to make any, any uh, points on what is fair and what isn't fair. We're just going to introduce what is good ways of looking at fairness, what are some of the ways of looking at it, and to, to really introduce a, a few concepts here. So I think on fairness is we can really look at it at three levels. So the first being your, the fairness of your data input. So there it is really saying is, is because these models learn off of data, is the data that we're providing as input into the model, is the data itself biased is the first question you need to be asking yourself. If you provide the model with biased data, then you need to remove that bias itself. Also, if you've got protected variables in there. So in other words, where you do not want to um, for the model to learn off of a specific protected variable where a, protect, a protected variable can be something like gender, uh, it can be something like race, it can be something like income. A lot of different things where you might not want your model to train on is you need to make sure that those are either removed from the data set and then also that their impact is removed from the data set itself as well because there might be a lot of unintuitive but quite predictive relationships between the variable that you've input and some of the other features or variables in your data set. So that's something that you, you need to keep in mind. Secondly, in terms of the model design phase. So you need to look at when design, when making design decisions and, and when choosing what your structure is going to be, what your architecture is going to be. You also need to think at that point and you need to assess at that design phase, um, is there any um, bias or unintended bias in the, the model and are the design decisions fair towards key point, everyone that you want to be fair towards. Then also finally from a model output is you can do your best to get fair input data to do a fair design but still at the output phase when you actually get your prediction or you, you get your results you still need to make sure that it is at that point um, that it is that it is fair. So it's uh, yeah, really a result of assessing it at those three key points naturally it's a lot more more gray than that in between what is input phase design phase and output phase when you start thinking things like um, feature engineering etc validation a lot of different things but uh, I mean in short as a summary I think that's that's fair so then on on bias matrix itself so I think the key point here is that there's a lot of different ways of looking at bias or, or fairness in, in this sense is something like statistical parity difference where as I mentioned earlier with your protected with a protected subset of your data where that could be something like gender or race as we mentioned then just something simple like looking at what is the probability of it being classified of a data point from your protected data set being classified in a certain manner versus what is the probability of a uh, data point from your unprotected data set. What is the probability difference between those two? Is it below a certain error threshold? So in other words, close to zero. So is it less than whatever your threshold is, depending on your specific application? Some applications will have a higher error threshold. Others, very, very little error for or error for error. 
then equal opportunity difference takes a, a slightly different view of it. It's not just looking at the pure probability. What it's looking at there is it's looking at what is the, the actual, the true positive rate. So of the actual positive occurrences, how many did we predict accurately? Which is a slightly different take on a similar concept in terms of saying that while the probability might not actually be the same, we just want to make sure that we are consistently classifying the specific occurrences. So in other words, that's more making sure that the predictions that you're making are fair rather than the probability itself is, um, is the same. So we can go into more detail on average absolute, uh, absolute odds differences, disparate impact, etc. Don't think that's uh, really the, the aim of the session. I think the aim is really to say that there are multiple metrics. Here are some ones that you can take a look at and uh, really to say that it depends on your specific application. What does fair mean for your problem? So while some applications might look fair, different applications, different uh, measure might be, might be more appropriate. So Andre will quickly talk us to the, the fairness model build pipeline and just elaborate slightly on that. Okay, good. So I think Anka has pointed out, uh, showed you on the previous slide, is some simple metrics that you can diagnose fairness. And they're not machine learning specific. I think they've used in many other fields, income inequality measured with some of those, et cetera, et cetera. But the point is now, once you've diagnosed fairness using one of those metrics, what do you do now? Well, the point is you've got to mitigate that bias risk. Because if there's bias in the model, you know, you're going to make a prediction that could be uh, seen as you know, unintended discrimination against gender, uh, age, or whatever the case might be. Now, there are basically three types of approaches to this. There's, there's quite a few of these uh, bias risk mitigation techniques, uh, and you can actually apply them uh, in so-called so pre-processing, so you, you apply these techniques on your data before you, you build your model to kind of, you know, to, to, to take out bias there. Or you can actually use an algorithm that's sensitive to fairness. There are some algorithms available that in the actual classification is going to take fairness into account. Or you can you know, do your predictions or classifications and then apply some of these techniques on, on the outputs, on the confusion matrix or some of the outputs there. Now, these techniques uh, at the bottom here, uh, they range from fairly simple ones to highly complex ones. In fact, uh, you know, some of these use some of the more sophisticated neural net, uh, neural net technologies that, you know, that actually only recently came out. So uh, going into detail of those, totally beyond the scope of discussion, we're going to unpack these more at our session coming up in November. But maybe just a couple of comments on them. So on fairness pre-processing, you know, there's a technique like reweighing re of the data. That's a very simple technique. I mean, it's like stratified sampling. You just uh, you know, create some more balance in, in your data classes using techniques like SMOTE and, and whatever, upsampling, downsampling. And then you can, there's some more complex technique, you know, using unsupervised neural net representation learning uh, type algorithms that actually learn a fair representation of your data. And then your model in the, in the latent space can get very, very complex, uh, but it has techniques as well. In in-processing techniques, this adversarial debiasing is a very interesting algorithm that Google invented just not too long ago. And what it really, really does, it trains two, two neural nets back to back. So the one neural net would uh, maximize the prediction accuracy, and the other neural net would actually use that prediction to minimize the accuracy of predicting the sensitive variable, right? And, and you train them back to back, and you end up with a 
a prediction model that's, that's actually fairly accurate, but you know, not biased. Uh, prejudice remover regularizer. Regularization is a very common thing when we, we talked about it just now. And what you typically do in regularization, just add a penalty term to the error terms in, in minimizing the prediction errors. So what you do here is just add a fairness sensitive term, however you define that. But that's an approach and it works quite well. And then the last set of techniques is really, you know, you use a confusion matrix and you might use different thresholds in, in a classification on your confusion matrix depending on, on the, the classes that, that you deal with. So um, it, it's, it's a quite a, a large field, but the point is here, yeah, there's, there's these techniques and they can be applied to totally mitigate bias risk in, in your model. Thanks, Andre. So what we've got here is we've got a, a quick case study that we're going to run through on a, a model build, and this is specifically for fairness. So what we have is we've got uh, census data, so 40,000 records split into two data sets, training set, test set. So in other words, 30,000 training, 10,000 test set. So in, uh, some of the features in there include age, race, sex, together with uh, a lot of other factors there. So in there we might have some, some protected variables uh, that we actually want to remove and, and say we want to be fair towards those uh, specific individuals in this. And just a simple objective, predict whether their income is greater than, than $50,000, yes, no. So what we did is we fitted a, a random forest classifier on the training data and then made predictions on the, the test data set. So bottom left, we've got the confusion matrix. It's unfortunately a bit small there, but it shows that uh, the, the uh, true positive rate is quite good um, and then the true negative rate also quite good. Fit is generally quite good. Translates to a, a very good uh, accuracy there of 91%. So in other words, we're saying that the, the fit is, is quite good. So now the question comes in to, to just really say, is, is are the results fair? So when we look at these fairness metrics over here, and we've just got two, two protected variables in there, is to say that these actually might, for, for the most part, be above the threshold that we deem as, as fair towards our protected variables. So on a statistical parity difference basis, on a equal opportunity difference basis, um, it might actually be deemed unfair. Um, on Thiel index might be, might be deemed not, not unequal. Um, disparity itself might uh, also be outside of the, the requested thresholds. So in other words, this is just saying that, well, there's probably a bit of bias in there. Um, if it is an, an issue for you, then you would have to look at some of the, the debiasing techniques that, uh, that Andre mentioned. So then I think a, an imp quite a important con um, comment on the bias performance trade-off. So again, another trade-off that you need to make when saying that traditionally when you think of it that mitigating bias, you would think that it would cost you accuracy, right? Because you want to generate as much lift as possible. You want to get the predictive power as high as possible. Whatever the, the objective of that is, if that is maximizing profit at the end of the day, um, it's, it's something that you want to look towards, but you're work, really working towards that maximizing accuracy. And what we're saying there is that a lot of the times you might think that reducing bias will cost you accuracy in that sense, if that is really what, what you're looking at. So what we're seeing is, while yes, that might be the case, uh, you also need to really think about how you would then adjust it for, for debiasing. So in other words, when we look at something like um, 
prejudice uh, remover over there is it's got quite a big impact on the the accuracy itself so it takes it down from 91 to 0.84 it doesn't reduce your fairness score by much you want to get your fairness score as low as possible something like equalized odds on the other hand has a negligible impact on your actual accuracy but it reduces your fair score by quite a bit so in other words you're gaining a lot of fairness through but losing very little accuracy and that's really where you want to be so again the comment is saying lots of different ways to do it you need to find the right way of of actually uh, doing it so i think we'll, we'll take some more questions on it at the end um, andre is going to deal with uh, quite a, a fascinating topic on interpretability and explainability then we'll just delve into to some more questions at the end if if you have any on the topic good so i'm conscious of time so you have to move a bit faster now but Anyway, good. I think you, you get a sense now. We, we build a model that uh, is hopefully taken all, all the uh, is not overfitting, and we build a, taken that model now and applied in the previous section. Apply these uh, bias removal techniques, and we've taken out all the bias, and now we're left with a model that is uh, not overfitting. Uh, it's uh, reliable as the way it seems, and um, it doesn't have any bias, but we cannot uh, explain the prediction. So, so that's where this part comes in. And it's really a key, key part of AI. I mean, if you spoke to anybody maybe even a year ago and said, well, have you ever tried these uh, algorithms, neural nets, and credit default prediction, I would say, won't even look at it because it's black box. We cannot explain predictions to anybody, and so on and so on. Well, that's maybe still the case in some areas, but, but things are changing fast. So what we're going to look at now are some of these techniques that you can actually now start to interpret algorithms. We're going to um, you know, just also split it up between machine learning and deep learning because deep learning is a lot more complex. Now, in traditional models, uh, interpretability is not an issue. I mean, logistic regression type model, um, you know, you, you pre-select a mathematical function. You know what mathematical function is being used. And once the parameters are optimized, there's the, the relationship between the predictor variables and the response variables are clearly defined and interpretable. And that's, that's straightforward. However, with machine learning and AI, it's not the case. Uh, uh, there's no function that, you know, well, you, you can. There's a class of machine learning, like in the GLN space, that you can se uh, select a logistic regression and use machine learning to optimize the parameters. But in typical, moving outside of that in the, the other algorithms, um, the algorithm would actually, you know, come over a so-called universal approximation function that provides the most accurate mapping from the input space to the output space, but it's not going to tell you what it is. It's not going to write down that, that function. You don't know what it is. Uh, the, the second point is the relationship between the response variable, the predictive variable and response variable is, is not known. It's not part of the model output. The model gives you a prediction and that's it. it. might give you a couple of other metrics. Um, but, you know, you have to do additional type analysis to get to that. So, and then you have the, uh, the other problem that you're typically not dealing with one type of model. I mean, uh, the ensembles or so-called, you know, uh, multiple models, combined models, which, which make interpretability a lot more complex. So, what we basically see, say, is that you have to deal with interpretability at two levels. There's this global interpretation. Because of the, what, what I've just uh, now said is the fact that you have multiple models interacting. So you want to see uh, the whole model, that ensemble across the total data set, um, try and understand you know, how uh, it does its prediction and what variables it uses is important. But uh, in addition to that, you also want to know what the interpretation, how the model arrives, interpretation for individual prediction. 
because overall that might, you know, you might trust the model and it looks all sound, you know, and it all makes sense in terms of the variables are selected to come out with predictions, but, you know, now for a part of that whole three ensemble, the prediction is maybe not so, so accurate and, and can't be explained. So for global model interpretability, there are featured, so-called feature importance techniques. Uh, and what we've done here, we've taken a loan data set, it's a simple loan data set, defaulted default prediction, and then use one of these uh, feature importance algorithms to, to provide us with a feature importance. So it's come up with a top feature importance, a uh, number of bureau inquiries, FICO score, size of installment, and so on. So, you know, we, we can, you know, intuitively, uh, judgmentally, an accredited expert can look at this and say, yeah, it, it all makes sense. And this algorithm would also give you those uh, feature importances for both classes. Class, class, in this case, class zero, I think, is the default class, and, cla and class one is a non-default, or vice versa. But anyway, it will also give it to you for both classes. And the output it will provide you, these feature importances are in terms of, it's a relative ranking, and that relative ranking is in terms of the feature's impact on the response variable. So one feature has twice uh, the uh, impact on the response variable, then another one it will have a bar that's, that's twice the size. That's basically uh, what it does. And now, the problem with these kind of algorithms um, is that there's this issue of repeatability, right? So it's a typical, it works very similar to variable selection, you know, it would select a feature, make a prediction, then add another uh, feature, and then see how the prediction changes. To, to measure that impact, but the order in which those features are selected in that process also impact on the prediction. So it becomes a, a combination uh, explosion type problem and you know, the algorithm have to evaluate, uh, do, do that kind of feature impact analysis across all the possible combinations of, the, of, of features. So the SAP algorithm has come up with the, actually with the optimization that you know, optimize objective within certain constraints to make this actually calculation a lot faster. So it, it works the best of the algorithms out there. You know, you can get a feature important and it's, it's repeatable. Um, you know, you don't have this uh, repeatability problem. So, so at the global level now, we, you know, we, we've done analysis and we can now see which features uh, are important, the relative that the model is using and making his decision. And, you know, it, it, it looks uh, sound. Now, the next problem we have to deal with uh, is a individual interpretation. Now, this is a little, a little bit more complex problem because, as I said, you know, this is not typically output you get from any machine learning algorithm. So, the technique that's being applied here is, is to make use of a so-called surrogate model. Okay, so you have a complex model that does a prediction from the data. And then you fit another uh, interpretable model, which is an easily interpretable model, like a linear regression model, to actually interpret the, those, those predictions. Okay? Uh, surrogate model uh, is quite, a, uh, quite an important type of, of construct in data science. It's used in many fields. Uh, in this area, it can work quite well. So these surrogate algorithms, uh, how they would typically work, they would, you know, and, and the point here is that you would actually fit one of these surrogate models, interpret the models per individual prediction, right? It's done for each and every prediction. So what the surrogate model would do, it would take the input vector for that row that you want to explain a prediction and then 
in, in the vicinity, in the neighborhood of each and every value, variable value, it will do a perturbation. And it will actually use another machine learning algorithm, something like a k-nearest neighbor, to do, to do that perturbation. And then it will end up with a sample, you know, with a, you know, maybe 100 or so, whatever the case might be, of input um, records that's kind of clustered around the actual, you know, values of the, of the model of the, uh, you know, of, of the, the road that you're now trying to predict. And then it would actually use the complex model, the black box mo model for all of those perturbed uh, samples to do a prediction. And on those, those inputs and outputs, then it will fit a, a linear regression model. Okay, we'll optimize the parameters of a linear regression model. And then you have the actual inter in linear regression model coefficients to, you know, uh, to actually in interpret the, the prediction. Right, so what we've done here, we use one of those algorithms, it's called LIME, uh, Local Interpretable Model Agnostic Explanations. And on the same line data set I just showed you, we, we fit uh, one of these uh, linear regression surrogate model on a 1,003 rhinophoros to actually provide a prediction, uh, to explain the prediction. Now, a uh, uh, very important feature of these type of algorithms, they, they model agnostic. So the algorithm agnostic. So whether we would use, in this case we use the Ranaforos, but we could use a CAD boost classifier, LGBM, XGBoost classifier, whatever, you know, it's agnostic to the interpreter model, the interpreter algorithm. So outputs that we give you then are the, the features and the, the weights and the you know, contribution, both positive and negative, to uh, the, the response variable. And, you know, we can use that, uh, you know, analyze that and, and see if that makes sense and you know, it's consistent with, with the analysis we've done on the overall data set. And we could do that same prediction on multiple uh, interpretations and, and see if it's consistent and makes sense. Okay, the problem, with, uh, additional problem we're dealing with now here is this whole called uh, issue of surrogate model risk. Now, Obviously, this interpreter model is a proxy, you know, so you have a real model that does a prediction and interpreter model, which is a proxy to that. And you have to make sure that, you know, it remains a, um, you know, it tracks the predictions of the, of the complex model quite well. Although you're not using the, the surrogate model for the predictions, you know, if that uh, gap is too wide and it doesn't track, then of course it creates not a model that has an implication. So typically what one would do is like, yeah, just uh, take a total data set, a full population, you know, use the machine learning model to do the predictions, and then uh, you also use the surrogate models that you fit it to do the predictions and see if they, they track one another uh, relatively well. Okay. Now, we've got some predictions, and we can explain the predictions using the analysis we did before, but there's another concept here, and this whole issue of explainability. And many times these, these terms are used interchangeably, but what we really mean by explainability, we can interpret uh, the predictions and get the reasons for a particular prediction, but we still don't know how the algorithm and the machine learning model has actually got, uh, gotten to that decision. What is a decision path, uh, um, you know, and how to arrive that decision. So uh, for tree-based algorithms, there is this uh, tree-interpreter algorithm available that can actually assist with creating some transparency in you know unpacking that decision path. Now, 
as you know, the way the decision tree works, you know, it starts at the top, it would split on a, on a node, and the process is going to try and minimize gene, impu gene impurity, select a, no select a variable to split on, and try something else. Uh, and if it gets uh, imp uh, improvement in prediction accuracy, it will then move to the next layer, uh, next level, and so on. So what you can do with a three interpreter algorithm between the, the improvement in that prediction accuracy between one node to the next as it you know, uh, optimizes down towards the leaf nodes can actually be explained in terms of you know, the, the diagram that we see on the left, similar to what we saw before. Uh, positive and negative contributions uh, weighted of these various features to that um, you know, in, improvement in, in the accuracy between those two nodes. So if you do that throughout all the nodes in the tree, all the, way, all the levels, all the way down, um, you, can, you can actually build a nice uh, order trail of, of the decision path that, that's been followed. Um, good, okay, so that, that covers machine learning. Now deep learning has been very, very complex to um, you know, unpack in terms of these interpretability uh, models that we've seen so now. These surrogate models that we talked about just now don't work for deep learning. They're just way too complex. Um, and it's been traditionally been a problem with, you know, the black box of neural nets, although they're very, very powerful, very, um, yeah, uh, a lot of black box. Now, very recently, there's been some, some new techniques becoming available for also explaining uh, interpretations of deep learning of neural net models. Now, one of them is the so-called contrastive explanation method, uh, CEM. You can apply it per prediction uh, for neural nets. And what it will do, it will actually produce a so-called pertinent positive and, and pertinent negative. So pertinent positive, uh, uh, let's look at pertinent negative. What it, that is, is the, is the features, if, if it's, you know, uh, if it's say a loan that's been declined, it will then provide you information about the features that it's used in coming to that decision, uh, their relative weights, as well as some cutoff values that would have changed that, the outcome of that prediction, which is a very, very, very important piece of information to have. Likewise, if it's uh, pertinent positive, it would actually tell you these are the features well, uh, it, it, uh, with their importance and weights, uh, that it used to come to a certain decision and would all give you some uh, minimum values that it, uh, threshold values that would have still uh, maintained that type of decision and not changed it. So that's the pertinent positive. So it's very useful output. Here we took a credit uh, default prediction model again uh, on a neural net built with uh, TensorFlow on a, a line of credit uh, default prediction. And in this case, the, the prediction of uh, probability default was prediction was above the, the threshold, so the loan was declined effectively. And we ran this uh, CEM algorithm to come up with uh, explanation. So what is telling us on, on a chart, it's uh, defined three, three features there that uh, was uh, you know, most pertinent, most important with the weight to you know, coming to this uh, decision. And then in the output of the algorithm, it will give you additional information that would say you would actually have accepted this loan if um, you know, external risk estimate increased from 65 to 70, application was on file for minimum of 65 months, and, and so on. Um, so that's kind of information you know, uh, that this algorithm will, will provide you to, to explain, explain the prediction. So 
very, very key um, uh, breakthrough now we see in you know, the whole black box thing. I mean, neural nets are the most powerful, and you want to use neural nets because they, you know, can do predict a lot more, you know, deal a lot better with with uh, complex data than a lot of other algorithms, and we now have the ability to interpret them as well. Okay, so. We're going to open up for questions just now, but just quickly in terms of summary, I think we've, we've seen now that this technology is, is really growing and there's no signs of slowing down, maybe even picking up. Um, this whole performance risk is, is uh, management of, of AI and machine learning models is very, very crucial. Uh, I think we've, as we've seen now, there are sufficient techniques available. Clearly, uh, overfitting and robustness can be managed. Uh, there's quite a few of these algorithms now available to mitigate bias risk and take bias risk out of these models. And there's also techniques available in machine learning and the deep learning, more complex space for actually interpreting and explaining the predictions of these, these kind of algorithms. So we believe that it seems to us, uh, you know, as PwC, we're sitting that this, we can't, we can't have at a point now there are a lot of the concerns around, you know, broader use of these kind of uh, algorithms in the financial services and the regulated space. Uh, those concerns are not so valid anymore because there are ways to, to address them. Uh, so hopefully we've shown you today. Thanks, uh, Andre. Just also, we will be unpacking uh, these themes in more detail. So in other words, really d diving into each of these uh, topics at our second Responsible AI seminar, uh, the 20th of November at our offices. You're all welcome to attend. It's free of charge. It's, uh, it's a morning session, starts at 8, runs until just before lunch. Uh, you're all welcome to attend. Just please uh, send either of us a mail and we'll, for we'll send an uh, invitation to yourself so we can get you, you registered. But yeah, thanks, thanks so much for attending. Uh, we'll open for for questions uh, if anyone has any any other questions. Otherwise, we really hope to either get you for a coffee sometime or uh, alternatively that you attend our, our seminar. And we'll see you there. We'll take some questions now. Thanks. Thank you. Um, hi, Andre uh, Hink. Thanks for the talk. Nice, nicely packaged in 40 minutes. Um, um, just given your, given the art nature of, of these models, I mean, there's white papers you can read, sort of get to get best practices on what a neural net needs to look like, what the nodes should be, etc. Um, how do you deal with with scale? Because often the question is, you just got to try it out. Um, there's no like, like, link to your question. There's no like, it's not a solved um, sort of concept. Um, and I'm not referring to scaling compute because that's sort of solved. I'm, I'm referring to scaling the, the model development cycle or, or process. Um, whether you've looked at any techniques, tools, frameworks that help with that. Yeah, thanks a lot. If I can have a first go of that. Yeah, a very, 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 very valid point. I mean, clearly you don't want to go through experiment and set up for each type of problem. I, think that, I don't think there's an easy answer to that. The way we approach the SADX, Start defining the domains. You'll very quickly see that there's sort of, you know, if, if it's a classification problem in credit, you know, typically you would have either extra boost or maybe a random forest classifier would perform the best 95% of the time. Um, so I think if you, if you can break it down into domains, you're going to have to start doing some experimentation at first, but then find, find a standard pipeline selecting this algorithm, use this for feature engineering, we're going to you know, use prediction with this using this technique for hyperparameter optimization. 
and it, you know, which would work for many problems in, a, in an early defined domain. So that's the way we would suggest, is by way of model design standards, define those type of you know, techniques and algorithms that will be used. Um, you know, it should be standardized on uh, as a starting point for each, each problem in that domain. Yeah, I think to briefly add to that, I 100% agree with, with Andre, and then also just making sure that your, your model build process and getting early an early sense, trying to get an early sense of what you're trying to do is working, that you don't go the full nine yards, only to then realize um, that this isn't going to work. So almost getting the, the quick wins, getting the quick gains, getting the early indication, and then if uh, that's not going to work, then you, you try something else. Um, I think given the number of judgments, um, key judgments that you have to make um, to, to get this running. Um, the word maybe machine learning is a bit misleading. Um, I think there's a huge risk to do with the modeler and the experience of the modeler in this space that doesn't necessarily come out when we, we, we discuss this topic. Yeah, it's a very key point. I mean, uh, you know, it's, it's like the, the unicorns of data scientists are somebody who has uh, domain expertise uh, statistical mathematical expertise and software engineering expertise. So very, very key. You have to understand the problem very, really, very well. A lot of these issues, I mean, you know, I've always said if you, if you know that, don't even think about machine learning as a first place. So, okay, you know, you've got to understand the problem. So if I didn't have any machine learning tools, how would I go about even doing spreadsheets and silver calculations? So this is just a more advanced tool of really, you know, building a more powerful model. But I know shortcuts, and I think um, you know a lot of talk about AutoML. I see there's some talks over here. We don't believe in AutoML. That's a personal opinion. Uh, AutoML is really trying to automate the easy part of machine learning, and that's fitting various different algorithms, a couple of lines of code. There's a lot of judgment. There's a lot of um, you know you know key design decisions that have to be taken. Many trade-offs that need to be made throughout the process, and that just comes through experience. Any other questions? Nothing else. Okay, perfect. Thanks. Uh, thanks again, everyone. I hope to see all of you at the seminar or uh, see you around sometime. Enjoy the rest of your day. Cheers.